So I have to respond to Peter Dinklage. You all know Peter Dinklage. He's the dwarf actor who played Tyrion on Game of Thrones. Terrific performance. Uh, He was on a podcast, and he started taking off after Disney. Disney has been very successful making their old animated features into live-action features. The best one, I think, was Cinderella, which was uh, Kenneth Branagh, and he just made Cinderella. He didn't do anything politically correct. He didn't update it. He just told the story, and it was actually quite a good movie. So they're making... Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and they've cast uh, the lady from West Side Story, Rachel Zegler, uh, as Snow White. And Dinklage is on a podcast, and he says, literally no offense to anyone, but I was a little taken aback when they were very proud to cast a Latina actress as Snow White, but you're still telling the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Take a step back and look at what you're doing there. It makes no sense to me. You're progressive in one way, because they're doing casting a Latina, but then you're still making that backward story about seven dwarfs living in a cave together. What the blank are you doing, man? Have I done nothing to advance the cause from my soapbox? I guess I'm not loud enough. Uh, Dinklage is not involved with the Disney film. And Disney, of course, immediately caves in and says, to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film, we're taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with members of the dwarfism community. You know, Dinklage is a terrific actor, and I'm sorry he's grumpy, but he's being a little dopey here. First of all, fairy tales are not about your particular political point of view. They're not about, uh, you know, whatever you're selling this week. They are very, very deep stories that speak into children's hearts, and children understand them immediately. I want to read a great book about this. Uh, It's called Saving Cinderella, uh, What Feminists Get Wrong About Disney Princesses and How to Set It Right. It's by Faith Moore, who, yes, happens to be my daughter, but it's also a terrific book you can get on Amazon, Saving Cinderella. But basically, what, what Faith talks about, and what is obviously true is these are stories that speak into the heart of children, in the hearts of children, and children understand them. Children understand that when a fairy godmother uh, comes and gives you a dress, that there, there's no fairy godmother. They understand that a mouse isn't going to sew up your dress and all this stuff. They understand that they're being told something about their inner lives, and if they, that is being told in the person of dwarfs, there's absolutely no reason uh, to change that in any way, shape, or form. It's not going to have anything to do. Uh, it's only good, all it's going to do is block off the contact with that part of children's hearts that responds to that. And that is not going to be a good thing. That's not going to help you out. But the other side of this, in in some ways, is is more what I want to talk about. Peter Dinklage is a dwarf, and I'm not going to, you know, I make a little joke about that, but I don't really, I'm not laughing at that. That's an actual disability. I'm sure it made it childhood incredibly tough. Uh, I'm sure it makes life tough even today, Uh, you know, and I have no idea what the experience of living with that is. And I'm not, I'm not belittling it, so to speak, and no pun intended. I'm not diminishing the, the power of what that is in his life. On the other hand, if you took another perspective on it, Peter Dinklage is the luckiest dwarf who has ever lived, okay? He's a dwarf actor who happened to be born at the one time in all of human history when the top romantic lead in one of the biggest productions ever made, of certainly of its decade, was a dwarf, and he got the part. And nobody said boo. Nobody said, oh, you can't have a romantic lead who's a dwarf. Nobody cared. I mean, I, I was riveted to the screen for like eight years. For eight years, this guy had the best part in the world, really literally the best part in the world that he got. A little bit of, a little change in perspective, and he might be grateful. He might say, what a wonderful thing happened to me. What a wonderful thing 
that that God, providence, luck, whatever he wants to call it, took my problem and turned it into a blessing. That's an amazing thing. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful to live in a country that accepted it. I'm grateful to be born in a time that accepted it. And you know what? I, I, that, that gratitude has given me so much faith in my fellow countrymen and in the people who watch, uh, you know, the, who watch these productions that I trust that when they see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, they're not going to take it as an attack on dwarf, uh, on dwarfs. They're going to understand it as a story that speaks into the heart of children. Why is it, why is it that our creative class feels that they can only achieve intellectual seriousness by bitching and moaning? Why is it that they cannot see that they are living in a way in the best possible timeline and certainly in the best country to be living that timeline in? It is, it's fake. It's, it's a fake kind of intellectual seriousness. And the idea that somehow his role in Game of Thrones was meant to move the needle on our attitudes uh, toward dwarfs. If we, if our attitude wasn't accepting, we wouldn't have watched the show in the first place. Just why, I don't understand why complaining, why negativity, why pessimism is considered somehow more profound than simply understanding that, you know, if you don't live with gratitude, if you don't live with joy, you are wasting the only life on earth you will ever get, which I think is a more profound insight than Peter Dinklage complaining uh, after having lived really, really a very, very fortunate life in spite of his disability. I'm sure you're enjoying this great content, so why not like and subscribe so you get more? And if you want even more Claveny goodness, subscribe to the Andrew Claven Podcast. So Peter McCullough and I are, are having this chat with Matthias and on a podcast, and, and I asked Matthias, okay, doctor, what's the prescription? What's the therapy here? He said that he and his colleagues have been talking about this a lot because now he's out and this, this inference, this hypothesis is widely circulating in his academic domain, and they're all debating it. He said that the emerging consensus is that we're already so deep in it, uh, it's here. Um, it's not the wolf is at the door, the wolf is in the house. We are suffering from mass formation on a global scale reinforced by global media. That's what all this coordinated propaganda, censorship, and everything has done. We're there. And he said the only thing yet to be determined is how deep the mass formation goes. How intimately people get wrapped up around this logic, calling, it's a stretch to call it logic. It is completely resistant to facts. Facts are irrelevant. If facts are inconsistent with the, the, the storyline that the mass has formed around, those facts will be rejected. This is another fundamental thing about human psychology, is it can be clearly demonstrated that there are data which come in through your senses. And what happens is your brain processes those data and compares them. This is you know, fundamental signals coming through your eyes or your ears or touch. Those data aren't directly perceived. They are compared against a model cognitively in humans. And those data which are inconsistent with that model will be rejected. We are only able to perceive that which is consistent with our own 
intellectual model of reality. It can be demonstrated again and again. This is a core part of hypnosis. Um, so these people that are caught up in the mass formation, it doesn't matter how much data you throw at them. They will reject it. And we see this in real time. This is what deplatforming is all about. If you, the, the, this is the, the logic of mass formation is intrinsically integrated into the Trusted News Initiative. The Trusted News Initiative defines any interpretation of current events, risk profiles, um, adverse events of vaccines, etc., which is inconsistent with the party line being put out by the World Health Organization or national health authorities, is not allowed to be discussed. The only permitted discussion is has to be consistent with the storyline being put out by these global bureaucratic public health leaders. Nothing else is permitted. This is intrinsically anti-science. It doesn't matter because those people are the identified leaders of the mass that have formed. Any other information will be rejected and if you spread any other information it is determined that that will lead to vaccine hesitancy and anything, whether it's true or not, anything which leads to vaccine hesitancy because the mass is formed around the idea that the vaccines are magically going to be able to relieve them of this problem, which is infection by SARS-CoV-2 and the threat that it represents. And so anything that is perceived as leading to individuals making a, a reasoned choice that they do not want to accept this vaccine personally is deemed to be mis- or disinformation by its very nature because it would alter their behavior and they wouldn't take vaccine. If you think this through, what that means is that the information that a given individual, you, your audience members, that they would require in order to have informed consent, true informed consent, it is not allowed. They cannot have access to that information that might lead them to make any decision other than the decision that the mass wishes them to make. Because the mass has formed around the concept in this situation that the vaccines are a, you know, a perfect solution to their problem, their cognitive angst, which is the, the existential threat of death from this virus. That's why they're so resistant to the data demonstrating that that is truly merely, a, that is an incorrect existential threat. The true threat, that's, that's why it, it's profound that the government is not allowing the true data on risk to be distributed. The government, and, and it's reinforced by Pfizer, Scott Gottlieb has, there's a great clip of Scott Gottlieb in former FDA director, right? Um, uh, now a member of the Pfizer board of directors, speaking to the press on video, stating that there's been over 600 deaths in the pediatric cohort in the United States since the beginning of the outbreak from COVID, and therefore there's a major threat to children associated with COVID. He never mentions the fact that there was an, a deep academic study 
that documented that virtually every one of those deaths was in a child which had major pre-existing comorbidities. They didn't die of COVID, they died with COVID. But Pfizer, with its representative board member, former FDA Commissioner Stott Gottlieb, neglects to mention any of that. Only the scare. Your child is at risk for dying from this. 600 other children in the United States over the last two years have so died. Therefore, your child must be jabbed. So we have the mass has formed around this idea that the vaccines are a perfect solution, reinforced by government officials, we all know who, um, reinforced by this surrogate marketing, which, by the way, is illegal. I mean, I've been trained in medical affairs. You are not allowed to market a product that is not yet licensed. There is no licensed vaccine available in the United States. It's all emergency use authorization. It doesn't matter. Okay, so getting back to mass formation, what will happen is that anybody who speaks anything, and by the way, they've defined if you are against mandates, you are an anti-vaxxer. That's now in Webster's. The definition of the term anti-vaxxer includes anybody who is opposed to mandated administration of an experimental medical product, which is exactly contrary to the um, Nuremberg trial outcomes and the Helsinki Accord, which say that you absolutely can't do that. You cannot mandate that somebody accept an experimental medical product without full informed consent and in willing acceptance of the risk. Those criteria are abundantly not being met. We have governments asserting that it's okay to go in and vaccinate children without their parents' consent. We have policy positions that if your child goes to school, you are by definition consenting that your child will be vaccinated at that school. That the whole thing for me and people ask, why are you speaking out, Robert? It is, it is profoundly shocking, antithetical to everything I've ever been taught in terms of bioethics. And one of the things as a clinical researcher is that you're subjected to bioethics training rigorously, repeatedly. It is one of the criteria. If you want to be a principal investigator at a clinical research trial, it was a core part of the Harvard program that I went to. Bioethics training. Bioethics, I've had it again and again and again, and we have completely disregarded it. In the book, you reference, you know, Hannah Arendt's kind of landmark work on the roots of totalitarianism. Um, it's amazing how little knowledge of this body of information there is in, you know, I guess among today's intellectual class and frankly in education in general. You would think it would be, you know, kind of required reading. Uh, Hannah Arendt was a German Jewish refugee from Nazism and after the end of the Second World War, she set out to understand, to try to understand, how it was that in Germany and Russia, totalitarianism of the right as in Germany or of the left as in Russia, how it came to power. What, 
what aspects of life their social life in those countries made them susceptible to totalitarianism. And to read this book from the point of view of the 21st century is pretty shocking when you think about what's happening in our society. Arendt said that by far the most important aspect that laid those countries open to totalitarianism was atomization of the people, mass atomization, and widespread loneliness. Mm -hmm. She said that in both countries, and had, which had come out of you know, the First World War and, um, and also of industrialization, all of these things which blew society apart and, and severed people's ties to the institutions and the ways of life and even their families and communities that gave their life structure and meaning, that all left a great mass of people lonely and not knowing who they can trust and where they didn't have any direction in their life. Well, along comes Hitler in Germany and Lenin in the Soviet Union or in Russia and says, here, we can provide you with meaning in life. We can provide you with a sense of purpose and a sense of solidarity. And people who felt all alone and isolated rallied to that. We have that today too here in the West. One of the things that shocked me about reporting this book out was to learn that the loneliest, in terms of self-reporting, the loneliest generation in American life is not the elderly, which you would expect they would be. In fact, it's Generation Z, the youngest people, who are the most connected with this artificial social network, but there's no substitute for human, uh, human companionship. So that was the most important revolutionary or totalitarian fact, uh, mass loneliness. Other factors, the loss of authority. Institutions lost authority, religion lost authority, uh, all of the, the things that had given people meaning in life and structure and a sense of, uh, of direction, those all came into question because of the war and, and other things. And so uh, people were desperate. They needed direction. Totalitarianism promised it to them. It was a false promise, but it was something that people grabbed onto. Another aspect, the willingness to believe propaganda, to believe any lie as long as it conformed to what people wanted to believe in the first place. Now this is widespread in our society today, it, it, both on the left and the right. When we lose, uh, when we lose desire to know the truth, even if the truth hurts, even if the truth goes against what we want to believe, then we are opening the door to totalitarianism, again, of either the left or the right. So these are some of the main factors that led those countries to become totalitarian. And uh, I see, when I read Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, I mean, it was like a light flashing saying, look what's happening in our own country today. We somehow think that our money and our, uh, our wealth, our democratic history is going to protect us from this. But as Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Soviet dissident said, uh, people around the world think that what happened in Russia can't happen here. In fact, it can happen in any country on earth under the right set of circumstances. You know, and of course, the, your book is named after uh, Solzhenitsyn's essay, right? Live, live Not By Lies, which is also, I would say, required reading, I would, I, I would recommend. Now, so I find something really interesting, and that's there's been this kind of very overt public discourse, even politicians, uh, say in uh, you know, Virginia, coming out and saying, 
this is me paraphrasing, it's perfectly reasonable for teachers to have the final say on children's education. It, it's, not, it's, not the, it's not the parents, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's been this, you know, I, I remember there was, I think, a Harvard professor that was, uh, you know, kind of questioning the, the idea of homeschooling, right, as being kind of uh, subversive somehow to the education of children. And this has made me think a lot about the family, which you focus a lot on uh, in, in, in the book as well, and how, one, the family is this unit in these totalitarian spaces where there is uh, trust and also... Um, I guess I guess the, the the basic unit of community in a sense, and the flip side, the the sort of the there's this also assault on the family unit as being important and central, uh, for presumably precisely th that mm -hmm. exact reason by these totalitarian ideologies. I want to explore that a little bit, and most notably, you 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 kind of go deep into the the, the Benda family, mm -hmm. uh, and it, you know there there are kind of lessons for life and how to kind of maintain the strength of the unit. So tell me about this. Well, it's so important to think of the role of the family under totalitarianism, because uh, what makes a totalitarian society totalitarian is that there are no middle institutions between the individual and the government and the, the state. So uh, it was so important to totalitarian governments that they eliminate the family, the traditional family, uh, as part of eliminating anything that gets between the individual and the state. Because if they allow that, then they see, the government sees a rival to the ruling ideology. So uh, if you go back and look at the early Marxist uh, rhetoric and propaganda about the family, you see that they saw the traditional family as a relic of feudalism, of capitalism, and it had to be destroyed in order to liberate the individual, which is, really means liberate the individual for slavery. Anyway, we see the same thing happening now with the left in our own country, in our own time. You mentioned the schools. I mean, this is where it's, it's happening, uh, where most people are going to find this. When you have schools in this country uh, already taking children, filling their heads with critical race theory propaganda and with gender ideology, you even have many schools that have formal policies in place that uh, if a child, no matter how young, says that they are transgender, the school will, by policy, refuse to let the parents know on the grounds that the parents are oppressive, oppressing this child. I mean, this is straight out of totalitarian societies, and it's happening right here. The family is such an important source of resistance, though, and I learned this from talking to the Benda family in Prague. Uh, Václav and Camilla Benda were the only religious believers, they were Catholics, in the inner circle around Václav Havel and the, the leading dissidents uh, in Czechoslovakia. And uh, they had five kids. Uh, Václav Benda died in uh, 1999, but uh, they raised their kids to be faithful Christians, but also dissidents. And uh, I went to the apartment, and uh, their apartment there in Prague, which had been a gathering place for the dissident community, in part because it was right around the corner from the secret police headquarters. And people, when they were on their way in to be interrogated, they would stop by the Benda apartment for prayer and for advice about how to resist the interrogation and so forth. But I talked to Camilla, the, she's now a grandmother, about how she raised her kids, why it was so important to have these kids involved in the family's work of resistance. 
And she said that they, they didn't know when communism was going to end, if it would ever end in their lifetime, and they did not want to lose their kids to communist ideology. So uh, they knew that the kids had to go to communist schools, state schools. When they would come home from school at the end of the day, the Bendas, primarily the father, would sit down and talk to the kids about what are you learning at school, and he would help them understand how the regime was lying. And so he gave them the, the, the precious gift of knowing how to discern truth from lies. They didn't just conform to avoid trouble. They also taught these kids by using movies and books what truth was, what goodness was. We were definitely going to have to talk about media because I, I'm, it's, it's really interesting how someone with your, let's say, journalistic pedigree, right? Um, well, you're not, you're not talking the same way a lot of other folks with a similar pedigree are talking right now. So I, I want to talk about that. Before we go there, though, this is what strikes me. Um, you know, one of the consequences of pandemic policy, yeah. right, has been, I think unequivocally, a vast, vast upward transfer of massive wealth to the wealthiest in, in the world and a huge cost to the working class and perhaps the middle class, certainly the working class. I've seen yeah. those numbers. Um, so, you know, what you're talking about makes a ton of sense. Like people are busy and busy surviving, right, in these places. Yeah. And so I, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is uh, I don't think this is something that there's a huge awareness of, but this is, there's been a massive shift over the past couple of years. You know, people talk about Gini coefficients and, and it, you know, it's important to not get it too high. Well, that, I, I don't know what it is going to be for the coming year, but it, it's going to shift. Why should the hardware store next door to me have at one point to close its doors when the Costco 20 miles, the Costco warehouse with its parking lot for thousands of cars practically, hundreds certainly, uh, be wide open? Um, why, why should Amazon be able to, you know, uh, come right to your door and send its drivers out in the middle of a pandemic and so on, while everyone else has to stay uh, locked up. Um, the wealth transfer has been immense. It's been measured. The number of new billionaires, uh, the, 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 the extent to which those 15 top billionaires um, quadrupled or multiplied their wealth has, has been now uh, calculated. Um, the results are in, the rich got richer, and they got richer faster than ever before. And uh, they seem, it would appear, to have almost a rooting interest in this new status quo. Because why should they voluntarily retire from the business of getting richer uh, when uh, it's working so well? Uh, they tend to identify therein, you know, what's good for Bill Gates is good for the country. You know, what they used to say, what good for General Motors is good for America. Um, it, it, it's frightening, frankly, to see the most powerful people in society uh, incentivized to continue this regimen, which is such a disaster for everyone else. Um, they aren't protesting. They aren't trying to get kids back in school. They aren't worried about you know, the survival of small businesses or the 
excess deaths that seem to be um, occurring. Uh, and Bill Gates, I read last night, is warning of even worse pandemics. Now, I have seen a lot of dystopian movies and I read a lot of science fiction, but in very few of them have the world's richest or second richest person appeared on TV to scare and terrify the populace with scenarios of death, destruction, and disease. That, that's not a healthy society that, in which that either happens or is tolerated. You know, so let, let, let's, let's go into this, the media, media question that I was mentioning a bit earlier. You know, you, so how is it that Walter Kern has this, I think I, I, when we were chatting you know, another time, I called you contrarian, you contested that. Yes. I, thought that was, I thought that was very thoughtful actually. But let's say different, quite different perspective on the world and people than, your, than frankly your peers, right? Well, it, it has to do with my path through life, frankly. I grew up in rural Minnesota. I grew up on a farm. I went to a school that's now closed because it didn't have enough students. Kindergarten through 12th grade in one building. And uh, that was my reality until uh, I went off to Princeton University. You can imagine the collision between farm kid and um, child of, of wealth at Princeton that I experienced. I then went to Oxford University on a fellowship. I was academically fit to do that and forever grateful I was given the opportunity. Came back to New York City, worked in at Vanity Fair magazine, many other magazines. I, I've, I've written for Time. I've uh, written for the New Republic. I've been a columnist at Harper's. These are these last two magazines, very establishment liberal magazines. And so rather than a contrarian, I'm, I'm still just that kid, uh, Dorothy from Kansas, uh, maybe, uh, seeing the ways of power without a lot of stake in, in affirming the ways of power. I, I just feel like a kid who snuck into the fair and, and is peeking in the back and seeing you know, how the con artists operate and so on and how the carnies uh, seduce their marks. But it's not contrary because uh, I'm not reacting to anything. I'm simply reporting with a natural skepticism which I thought was the job of all reporters. I mean, the reason I set out to become a journalist or become a writer was I wanted to tell the truth that those people who have um, authority and power in society might not want told um, or might not even be able to see by virtue of their position. You know, they, they, they're, they're subject to agreements and tribal loyalties that may not allow them to perceive correctly what's going on. I thought the job of a reporter was to be that little boy who sees the you know emperor naked, or um, and and I found out to my chagrin that there's a name for that. They call it a contrarian. They might even call it a conspiracy theorist. If you were to note that a few of them got together to do something that wasn't good, um, and I always thought of it just as the job. So 
yeah, I do reject contrarian. Just as I, you know, reject a lot of the labels they're using now to marginalize people. You know, they call people who are, who don't want to take the vaccine anti-vaxxers as though they have an ideology. Well, they don't. They, there's a certain medicine that they are, feel dubious about and maybe not, and maybe don't feel they need. Um, uh, and so the, the establishment, the system, which does exist, and I mean, I'm here to tell you that my voyage from farm to the canyons of midtown Manhattan media has taught me, yeah, they know each other. There's a group. There is a set of institutional affiliations, marriages, um, gold school ties, uh, financial bonds that in aggregate do create an establishment which does have some consciousness of itself, its own needs, desires, and interests. And, uh, um, you know, to, to honestly reflect that fact is not to me to be contrary, it's simply to be clear.